week of easter yes holy weekday worship holy weekday worship (laughs) special edition yeah missed you last week buddy well we missed each other because we were both gone you were in the great state of utah i was in the great state of florida Mm -hmm. one of them more scenically pleasing than the other probably you don't like looking at palm trees and kmarts i wasn't at the beach in Florida, so I was I was nearby a lake, so I did see some water. But wow! Would say that it was it wasn't exactly like you know the the kind of, it wasn't Utah, let's say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no, I had a great time. Good. It was a good week, but now a lot to do, including this today. Yes, paying the price for taking time off. But the show goes on. <laughs> no rest. And for by the going weary. on, it means James realizes that I. We play like chicken each week, and he always is the bigger man and texts me out like the night before, hey, are we doing the podcast? <laughs> I'm the then, bigger man? Yeah, because I'm usually just, if he doesn't say anything, we probably won't do it. <laughs> oh. And, so you're uh, looking for the eject button, and I instead put the seatbelt on you and keep you in, yes. in the chair. Yes. Sorry about that. And then I wake up on Wednesdays and fire up the old computer. You're just, well, you wake up Wednesday, and you're like, as much as I don't want to do this... I can't not because I, I like love doing it. it. I like doing it. It's Better. just uh, show a business going, is a grind. Like, you know? <laughs> I mean, between this and all the sponsors, we have to keep happy and yeah, um, all the listeners chomping at the bit. Yeah, sure. All the interviews that we have to do, media consultations with. <laughs> we don't have know. anything going on with media because you just use words. Use the words consultations. <laughs> That's what you, like, go to the doctor to see if you need a colonoscopy or something. I don't, yeah, I'm just, whatever. <laughs> what do you know about colonoscopies? You're oh, I know nothing. I know nothing of colonoscopies. Yeah. Right, Lord then. willing, not you, for years. You hush over there, then. I will hush. I'm, I've been hushed on, the, on a radio Shh. show. <laughs> uh, did you do a lot of hiking in Utah? I did. Yeah. I did do a lot of hiking. Do you, like, get, do you count, count your steps on that? Do you have, like, a Fitbit uh, going? No. Natalie did that. That's yeah, not for me. How, like how many how many steps? I hate, that's just something else to worry about. When you do like a hiking thing, is it like are we talking twenty thousand steps? I have 30, no clue. I don't care. But you have a wife who like she didn't tell you. Sure, I did, but I don't remember. Oh, I, so that's you're like one of, another you're one of those husbands. That's another thing to worry about. <laughs> you know, it's another stat. You can't that be I can, bothered. You know, like I, it's like grades. You know, it's just another thing to another stupid. Hold number on, you're a seminary student. You don't care about grades. Oh, I care about grades very much. So numbers are I don't like seeing them. Oh, okay. So, right. well, there's bigger and better things to talk about today than bigger and better. my grades or much better. I mean, your colonoscopy. Most important week on the calendar. Most important week in the history of the world. Yes, I'm very I, honestly. I woke up today very excited about Easter. I love Easter. I'm very excited about Easter. I love tradition. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a small reason. I just really love tradition. I love the rhythm. I love. That you you can expect this yeah. you know, every year, and there's a lot of uh, fun stuff around it. But yeah, we ha- we were in our uh, staff meeting yesterday, and uh, I can't remember what we were talking about, but it came up. They were talking. Oh, I think that were, somebody was asking about how early to get here on Sunday, and and I was like, I you know, I, I'm up on Easter Sunday. I'm mm-hmm. like up at 
way before the crack of dawn and I'm like energized. I'm like a, I'm like a kid in a candy store on Easter. So I'm yeah. up really early and I'm like, like sort of, uh, super energized and stuff always. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine yesterday who was like, he was talking about the, the difficulty of Christmas and Easter keeping things fresh. Cause you're, it's the same thing every year. Yeah. And you're I was not like, going to preach, like, you know, I, I kind of judges. It. Yeah. Christmas. Like I kind of I mean, get it with Christmas, uh, in a sense, maybe it's cause you do series usually around Christmas and, but, but I was like, man, I don't get, there's nothing about Easter that's tiring to me. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I get super excited to preach Easter. I love Easter. I love celebrate. I love the way we celebrate Easter, all the stuff around it. So we hope that anybody listening will be here on Sunday morning uh, and Sunday afternoon for our and worship Friday and night. cookout. And, little, and Friday uh, night for Good Friday. Good Friday service. Yeah, man. Which I enjoy that our church does not have a Good Friday service at 12 p.m. There's a lot, like, there's a lot of churches. In the afternoon? Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, like, a traditional in? thing to do. Your, I don't know. It's just always, like, our church did it growing up. I know a lot of churches do I, huh. I can think of a few right now doing it. <laughs> um, I, don't know, I guess that's just when traditional people did it. Well, but it's, like, come at your lunch break for, like, 45 minutes. Um, so I'm glad we do that in the evening. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. So. As a precursor to all of that. As a precursor to all of that. The, the main event of Easter, we, we hope, if it's not on Sunday, you should probably not come back to Generation, but is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Um, particularly, I think Easter, we, we highlight the resurrection more than we honestly talk about it all year, probably. I'm not saying that we don't. We talk about the resurrection a lot, and you want to you emphasize both Christ's death and resurrection as... Um, both necessary and equal parts of Christ's finished work. Yeah, I'd like to think that on any Sunday that you're worshiping with us mm-hmm. here, that there would be a explicit acknowledgement of and celebration of the yeah, resurrection you, of you Jesus. You should expect the resurrection to be front and center on Easter Sunday. Right. Um, be, but every Sunday there's a, yes. is, a, is a mini Easter, yes. so to speak. Yes. But... Um, and so with that, particularly within our culture, our Western culture, where Easter is kind of a, a traditional holiday, whether you're a Christian or not, um, and not everyone's celebrating it, obviously, because they believe the resurrection of Jesus. But you see with that expectation of the resurrection going to be front and center in lots of people's uh, minds around this time of year, you see also a lot of pushback or articles. It, ju- it just comes up. You'll see it in... in like, the New York Times, the whole year is not going to say anything about the resurrection of Jesus. But you may see an article this week on sure. the validity of the resurrection in major newspapers or TV or... Magazines. Uh, History Channel or something like that. Thing? Are there uh, still magazines? There are still mas- <laughs> magazines. Maybe podcast episodes. Maybe podcast episodes, yeah. And um, so we thought it might be helpful as we both want to think about these things and how the world's engaged in them, but also to strengthen our own faith, to talk through some of the apologetics of the resurrection in, in a format like this where you have more time to do it. Uh, you, want, you want your preaching on Sundays to, be, to have uh, apologetics as a part of your tool bag. And I remember, like a couple years ago, I th- you, you did a sermon that was uh, on Easter where you leaned into apologetics more than I, I think I ever seen you do. Um, I think it was outside. I was trying to do my uh, my best Caleb impression. <laughs> well, you were wearing uh, aviators while I was. We were preaching. outside because it was so sunny. Yeah, and you had to, you had to hold a mic instead of a thing. Was it, it the coolest I've ever been? Huh? In preaching, I mean, I I couldn't wear aviators preaching. 
but <laughs> I don't know that I thought about it other than I, yeah. my he eyes, was outside. I, I, I want to reemphasize it. He was not wearing <laughs> sunglasses. It, I don't think it was a stylistic choice. It was not. It was, it not. was a, uh, I probably can't see my notes for if, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a real <laughs> caveat because there's, <laughs> there's some I unmentionables. Will not, I will not be wearing There's some unmentionable preachers I can think of right now who <laughs> have worn sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it's don't sour the moment, Caleb. Okay. Don't yeah, sour the moment. So, but so we we want to we want to talk through uh, apologetics in this format, just to both strengthen your faith and maybe give you some some ways to think about this that are that are helpful uh, in conversation with others. Well, I mean the the Christian, um, I mean the whole Christian story is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. as a historical fact. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. So we don't want to um, overlook that. Yeah, and James isn't just pulling that out of thin air. He's when when he says that it's predicated our our faith, our beliefs, what we have hope in, is really predicated on the resurrection. He's basically summarizing Paul in First Corinthians fifteen. Um, when when. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, a very famous text on kind of the basics of the gospel, the basics of the events of the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And listen to what he says just a few verses later about particularly the resurrection mm-hmm. and how vital it is to our faith. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hmm. Paul seems to stake everything that he's preaching on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Right. The bodily, physical resurrection of the crucified Christ. Yes. And so, as important as the Apostle Paul makes it here, um, I think it's worth uh, thinking through a little bit. Yeah, and and look, I mean, in an increasingly um, skeptical, religiously skeptical environment of our country and our sort of uh, culture, people have, look, people have every right to question the validity of our claims Mm -hmm. that Jesus Christ died and rose. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to we, like we have to acknowledge that that's a little crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. To believe that a man was killed on a Friday, was dead, buried, and then walked out of the tomb on Sunday, never to die again, and that he's still living and ruling and reigning from now heaven where he's ascended. Like that's we don't make those claims about like that's a wild at the at the. Uh, earthly level, that's an outlandish sort of claim. Mm-hmm. And so it is absolutely legitimate for anybody and everybody in our surroundings to question whether yeah. that's reliable, reliably yeah. true. And on the other side, 
If it is true that God has gone to all this trouble to make himself known in the world graciously and to do this work of raising Christ from the dead and all that that means, then that's not, that's not something you can just glance over. That's something that has serious implications for your entire life and your eternal destiny. Yeah, we can't, like, you can't, you can't trivialize that. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to trivialize, trivialize that. Yeah. Um, so this really matters. And uh, again, when you're thinking about interacting with the, with the culture, I hear this sometimes as kind of a, a, a jab or a kind of a, a, a silly uh, thing that I've heard unbelievers say, um, and I, but I think they're serious about it. They're, they're like, if God is real, why doesn't he just give me a sign right now? Why, 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 if God is truly here and I ask for a sign, why doesn't he just give me one? Yeah, and prove it. And my answer to that is, what if he's already gave one that is so sufficient that there's not a greater sign that he could give. Mm-hmm. Why does he have to come and reappear little signs to you when he said he's done the ultimate sign and ask you to look back and check that out? Yeah. You know? And, and that assumes that if he gave us such a sign and we were to witness such a sign, that we would inherently be persuaded by said sign. Yeah. When, when even those people who were eyewitnesses yeah. were not all persuaded. Yeah. Right? Right, I mean, God, God, God believes that the evidence He's provided is sufficient. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a problem with us, yes, about and how we respond to mm-hmm. the evidence yes. supplied. There's not a lack of revelation God has given us about who He is and what He's done in the world, particularly in the resurrection of Jesus, that allows us to say, "Ah, this isn't convincing enough." Mm-hmm. But in that, we need to be as Christians. As I'm not God. I can't say that my, my arguments are as surefire as God's. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to, to reason with someone through difficulties that could come in talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. And so before we do that, though, when we talk about the, 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 uh, the resurrection in particular, uh, it's important. We don't have time to really do this today, but this is why sometimes apologetics takes just a lot more time than, uh, than most subjects is. Worldview is really important in having conversations about specific facts. Uh, we don't really have time to do that today, but I, but I want you to say this. If someone is a naturalist, someone who believes there, there, there is nothing beyond just matter or stuff, that there's no, uh, nothing but, but chemicals and, mm-hmm. uh, and matter in the world, then they, from the beginning, from the outset, in their own worldview are going to, to attribute anything that even looks supernatural to have a, a natural or kind of a, a, a sleight of hand explanation. Sure. Yeah. And that's important. I think, I think a lot of Christians need to hear that because a lot of them think if I just show people the, the facts, um, then they will, they, they're neutral enough to, to, to come to them. There's a lot of spiritual things going on there. But another thing is, is a, a naturalist is going to interpret things according to its own worldview many times. Yeah, and the, the built-in assumption mm-hmm. or presupposition is there cannot be the supernatural. Therefore, there's a natural explanation yes. for whatever phenomenon yes. we've observed. Yes. So yes. just as a precursor, it's really important to kind of peel that back with somebody. We're not going to do that here today. But I honestly think as we look at some of these facts, it makes the naturalistic explanation for what happened to Christ, very hard. Very hard to actually sustain. So that's where we're going. 
And I want to do that. I want to, I want to think through the resurrection by looking at first thing, a few things that, that come up in what I, what I would call misconceptions or uh, what people think are problems for the resurrection. Okay. The first is the timeline. I think a lot of people have this belief that the, the story of the resurrection of Jesus is something that came along much later past Jesus and his original followers. That's, that was developed um, by, by much later people who took up Jesus' ideas and were kind of pushed back onto Jesus himself and those early uh, Christians and apostles. And a lot of that, I think, comes from misconceptions about actually how close the eyewitness accounts we have of Jesus are to his to the actual events of yes. Jesus' yes. resurrection. Yeah. Yes. So let's just think through these in, in comparison to some of their contemporaries. So you got Jesus. He, he, he died or was living around 30 AD. There's not, I, I've never heard of a scholar kind of disagreeing with that. Sure. And you have Mark writing his gospel somewhere in the 60s. 60s AD, so within 30 years. You have Matthew writing somewhere between 70, 80, okay, 40-ish, 50 years. You've got Luke, same thing around that time. You've got John, the latest gospel, writing in the 90s. And to us, I think that sounds like, whoa, that's a lot of time that elapsed between the writing of the gospels, mm-hmm. uh, the not necessarily the eyewitness accounts, because those were in their heads and oral, but, but being written down in this way for mm-hmm. the gospels. But I, wanted, I want you to think how incredibly close that is to the events compared to some of the other historical figures we have. So somebody like Alexander the Great, very famous, uh, very influential, like one of the most powerful men in the world ever, mm-hmm. uh, before Jesus' time. And so no one denies when around he lived or, or what his life was, um, but we only have sources that are 300 to 450 years after his death about him. That's a lot of time. Yeah, and yet not a great deal of question of their reliability. Um, somebody like, so I'm going to skip one, but somebody like Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar during Jesus's lifetime. Uh, he only has four major sources about himself, uh, 10 sources overall. And uh, only one of those is contemporary, meaning only one of those is written around when he was alive. The rest are, would be uh, like closer to 100 years past his death. Mm-hmm. So we're about the Caesar. The, in terms of when Jesus was living, the Caesar's the more popular guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The most powerful man in the world. And we only have one source about his life that's within his own lifetime mm-hmm. or around his own lifetime uh, compared to sources that are later. Nobody questions about his life. So I want you to just know in terms of history, what we have is pretty unique in terms of how close things are to Jesus. Yeah, when was 1 Corinthians written? Well, we're about to get there. Because that's even earlier than yes. Mark's gospel, right? Yes. I mean, we're in the 50s. Yes. So James is bringing up uh, what I think is, the, is some of the best uh, evidence on this. But uh, something to point out in the gospels before we move on to them is I think a lot of people also assume that as a, le- a legend or a myth uh, ages over time, it continues to grow with more fanciful and miraculous uh, claims that go with it. Yeah, I thought sort this of, was interesting. Sort of more details that more, sensationalize it. Yeah, you, you make it greater, yeah. right? I, th- I found this very interesting. I, I read a scholar today say that uh, the latest gospel we have, John, he records the least amount of miracles. Hmm. That's incredible to me. Hmm. If John was trying to, sense, uh, trying to kind of beef up the story, mm-hmm. I think he would include it a lot of more miracles. That's an interesting thing compared yeah. to, to, to others. Now, James just brought up what, what I think most people don't think about, 
as a as a witness to Jesus's death and resurrection yeah. is First Corinthians, letter of Paul, and uh, it's around fifty five A.D. This is, this is the one you just read from. Yes, beginning the one, the one I just read. Fifteen. Yeah. Yes, that very passage where it talks about Jesus died according to the scriptures, he was buried according to the scriptures, and he was raised according to the scriptures. And and the next line in that verse, or that strain of thought, is and he appeared to Peter, to the apostles, and to five hundred five hundred people who and were still me. living at the time that Paul was writing First yeah. Corinthians. Yeah, and listen to what Paul says about those words in First Corinthians fifteen, right before he gives you that detailed. He died, buried, rose again, according to the scriptures. He says in verse 3, I gave you what I was given. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, this doesn't originate with me. This was right. given to me. This was something handed down to me. And, and most uh, scholars uh, looking at the Greek would say verses 4 through 7, those verses that give you death, burial, resurrection, it's almost in a creedal form. Mm-hmm. It's in a hymnic form, meaning this was some sort of statatement that early Christians were grabbing onto as kind of their core beliefs. Confession of faith. And it was being handed down. Mm -hmm. Right? So you go look on a church website and you see, uh, you press on their beliefs page uh, and you see the the things that most define them, what they believe. Mm -hmm. This would have been what the early church was was handing down to each other. First Baptist Jerusalem. Before Paul is even around. 50 BC or 50 AD. First Baptist Jerusalem. (laughs) Their website would have said this. Yeah. Maybe. Um, So so Paul's saying this is way before me. And, um, And most scholars think that that creedal formula there about the death, burial, and resurrection actually dates back to the 30s, 30s AD, the, the, literally the decade that Jesus mm-hmm. uh, was, uh, that he died and, and was resurrected. Uh, a very, very influential scholar by the name of James Dunn, who is no conservative Orthodox guy, he believes that these statements that Paul is using uh, were written somewhere within six months after Jesus' resurrection wow. and death. And so Paul comes to Corinth in the 50s, and uh, where, did, where did he get this information? Where's he getting that creed from? Like I said, it's being passed down, but where, where's it coming from? Well, uh, there's, there's some that think that Paul actually got this, where he got the statement from himself, was probably around, his, uh, around 35 AD. Uh, how did he get it, though? So that's about five-ish, three, three to five years after Jesus' death. Uh, it really comes down to when did Paul become a Christian, or, or w- if you guys went through our series through Acts, how much time elapsed between, between Acts 1 mm-hmm. and Acts 9, Paul's conversion? Yeah, we're talking about probably, what, five years, something like four years? I so <laughs> the most popular opinion, scholarly opinion on this, uh, was Paul's conversion was in two to three years after Acts 1, okay. or, or Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Yeah. And so, so Paul is converted within two to three years, after Jesus, and then uh, he, he says himself in Galatians 2 that he spent three years in Arabia, Arabia before he went to see the apostles. So two to three years plus another three, five to six years when he finally goes and spends time with James and the apostles for about mm-hmm. 15 days. Right. And uh, so that's when he would have probably got this material, was in that five-year period, somewhere between his... his uh, or his couple-year period between his conversion and when he met with the apostles. Mm-hmm. So that's all within just a couple years of Jesus' death that this statement has been formalized right. for him. And, uh, and he even meets, Paul, so Paul meets back with them, those apostles that he was with, 14 years later, he says in Galatians 2, uh, in Jerusalem, to see if the gospel is still the same with the apostles. Mm-hmm. And he meets with Peter and James and John, and, and Paul says in Galatians 2, 6, that nothing was added. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, 
Paul says it's, it's either I or them, me or the apostles, who are preaching the same thing. And it's the same thing that's been handed down all the way from all, to almost to the years in which Jesus was, was died, uh, that he died and was uh, resurrected. So that's not long away at all that you have the formalizing of the truth, of this witness that Jesus was uh, buried and he was resurrected. Okay, so that, that's dealing with kind of the myth that these were, these came up way after Jesus and anybody associated with him. Right. Right, so that's dealing with the timeline myth, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, in all of those, even when you get to, even if you deal with Mark, Luke, um, John, who are, John up to, you know, 50 or so, 60 mm-hmm. years later, you're still dealing with eyewitnesses. Yes. And you're still dealing within the, the generation of people who yeah. lived and walked among and with Jesus yeah. and yeah. in his lifetime. So, yeah. so you're, even with that longer timeline, you're still not getting, you're still within the lifetime of yeah. his contemporaries. Yeah, and if you think about, so think about somebody like Luke. If you were going to do a detailed history that was fact-checked, that had eyewitness accounts, that would take some time. Right. I know guys who write biographies on theologians. It takes them sometimes decades to write oh those gosh. things well. Yeah, I was reading a book this morning where I'm like, there's more written, more content on the footnotes than in the actual text mm-hmm. of the book. I mean, I'm like, dude, this thing has Welcome to take to forever. Oh, jeez, kill me now. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and it's, and it's that, I mean, it takes forever to write yeah, this stuff. Yeah, So yeah, we're dealing with first the timeline claim. I think that's, I think it's, I don't think there's really good evidence to say this came later. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually came earlier. Okay, now let's deal with actually the, onth- the authenticity of the claims themselves, that Jesus was buried, that he died when he was buried and he was resurrected. Um, a really important person to read on this, if you're interested, is a guy named Gary Habermas, uh, probably one of the top people who's worked scholarly on the resurrection in the last 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, very influential guy. I just call him Gare, but yeah. If you called him that in my presence, I'd slowly back away into the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> what does old Gare say? Uh, so in 2005, uh, he published a study of the previous 30 years of critical Jesus uh, resurrection scholarship. And he found that scholar, and this is, this is not just conservative Bible believers. This is, we're talking about all over the place. Liberals, uh, scholars who could never preach in our churches. <laughs> the scholar, gen, scholarly general consensus finds surprising amounts of historically accurate data in the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians 15. Habermas estimates that a, a three-to-one ratio of these scholars conclude in favor of the view that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, either bodily or in some sort of spiritual body. That is, most scholars seemed compelled to admit that some type of resurrection happened to Jesus rather than just a personal experience to the disciples. And he notes that this proves nothing that regards the resurrection, because it's something like spiritual resurrection aren't orthodox, but the trend displays a remarkable recent change of scholarly attitude towards the historical resurrection. So this is why this is important, why I'm saying this, is a lot of stuff that you read in, on the internet, and maybe even if you watch one of those dumb things on the History Channel about uh, the truth about Jesus or stuff, they're working with scholarship that's really old and actually isn't up to date on what scholars actually believe about the New Testament itself today. Um, and I think that's important because 100 years ago, there was a lot of people doing some news and weird stuff with 
the historical Jesus that nobody accepts today, but it's still put out in popular form. That happens sure. a lot in a lot of disciplines, yeah. where it's, it takes a long time for the scholarship to actually uh, Every, catch up with the popular opinion. Every once in a while uh, on the show, this might have something to do with my journalism background, um, we do break news. Mm. And so I just want to, like, this is breaking news, everybody. Pay attention. <laughs> Not everything you read on the internet is to be believed. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is, I know I'm just reading this and it sounds like I'm reading a boring quote, but that's insane that he's saying that we're talking about liberal scholars think that something happened. We don't know what it is, but something happened. Mm-hmm. So he goes on to say approximately 75% of critical scholars favor arguments for the empty tomb. With very few exceptions, scholars hold that Jesus' followers believe that they had seen the risen Jesus. Why is that? Why, why is it that most scholars have a really hard time refuting that there was, uh, there was evidence of an empty tomb? Mm-hmm. That's a serious question, and I think one that has some serious uh, power behind it, if we, can, if we can understand it. So there's kind of three ways in which the scholars, even ones who don't want to uh, wrestle with this. They don't want to come to terms with this. But why they come to this conclusion? The first is the, the criterion of multiple attestation. Multiple attestation. Uh, scholars assume that incidents which are recorded in more than one independent source are more likely to be authentic. What he's saying is, if there's multiple sources on something that are independent of each other, it makes it more reliable. Well, that's how our court system works, right? If you have, if you have two or three witnesses that each are independent of each story. other, but yeah. they can tell the same story, sure. uh, not in the same room together. That makes them credible, if that right. makes sense. So the, the resurrection clearly meets that criterion. Uh, there's not an event in the New Testament that's more attested than the resurrection. You've got it in uh, all four Gospels. You've got it in Paul's epistles. That's at least five sources. Even if you're going to cut those down to say Mark and Luke were using each other, we've got at least three right there. Okay, so first, you've got independent lines of witness on this. The second thing that scholars really have to wrestle with is the truth that uh, the resurrection has the criterion of embarrassment. What do I mean by that? <laughs> that it's embarrassing to claim it if it isn't true. You're is that- onto it. So, so th- this is where scholars assume that incidents which would have created embarrassment or difficulty for the early church are more likely to be authentic. So what I mean by that is, in the Gospels, who's the first people to... Who are, who are the first witnesses? Yeah, it's the women. It's the women. Now, we're like, oh, okay, whatever, I think in our culture today. But in this culture, in, this, in the in first century... In our culture, we believe women. In that culture... No, for real. They did not. W- women were not seen as valid witnesses. So in, in that time period, in the first century, women's testimony was not valid in a court of law. Right. So if the, if the writers of these witnesses to Jesus' resurrection wanted to legitimize Jesus' resurrection, they would not have held or put in that women were the first to yeah, actually Yeah, if you were to see create him. this story, you would have created it with, with the men followers as those who were eyewitnesses. Yeah, and you see later writers, like, uh, I know this is getting nerdy, but like the apocryphal gospels mm-hmm. and stuff, they try to switch us around because they don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see the, the, the early writers' commitment to the facts to telling the truth, which was the women's song first, even if that actually hurts our case in our own culture. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, the last criteria that really kind of pushes scholars to, to recognize that something happened in that empty tomb is the criterion of dissimilarity. 
So scholars assume that if sayings or events in the Gospels are not are incongruous with Jewish, Christian, or pagan beliefs, they are more likely to be authentic. So what I mean by that sounds kind of... What I mean is, if it lined up with kind of the, the mojo of the day, then it would have been seen as this, them just trying to form a story that kind of gets them intimate with everybody. Mm-hmm. But if it actually flows against what people believed and made them scoff at it, mm-hmm. it, would, it, it makes more sense that it was true because they're not trying to make something up that goes with the flow. So what I mean by that, so Jews, they would have... They believed, many of them believed in a, in a resurrection on the final day, but the idea of a resurrection of one man in the middle of the, of the eschaton or the, the age was repulsive to them. They didn't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. You look at the pagans, the Greeks, they thought bodily resurrection, the whole thing, uh, whether now or then, was terrible because they believed that the matter was actually lower than the spiritual. Mm-hmm. So you've got this idea where the, the resurrection was not something that everyone would have been like, oh, if that's true, that's really great. You know, they would have seen this is strange. This actually flows against what we believe. So it's, it's not like they're writing a story that really just gets everybody's goose, if that yeah, makes this, sense. This made them less relevant, uh, less credible, right? The, like the specific claims that they made around it. So if you're going to fabricate this story, they're doing it in all the worst possible ways. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And then just look at the diversity of the witnesses. Another big point. So as James mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about 500 Christians that saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time, which Paul says many of them are still alive. Yeah. And the reason he includes that detail is an encouragement, I think, for people to go, you want to ask if this is true? There's people still alive today who have seen him and who who bore witness to this. Yes. Right? Yes. Go check it out. Yes. And not just one group. It wasn't just he showed himself to the apostles and then he didn't show himself to anybody else. He showed himself to multiple different people Mm -hmm. at different places. So there will be independent witnesses, if that makes sense. And what's interesting in the Gospels that you begin to pick up on is how many proper names, personal names are used in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Because they want you to go ask those people. Yeah. They want you to go find those people. You, could, you can go and ask Joseph of Arimathea mm. if he was buried in his tomb, right? Yeah. Um, for, for, I mean, just by putting Joseph of Arimathea's name in the text, you can, uh, okay, I'm going to go to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and check it out. Mm-hmm. So you see them giving you basically chances to go check their work, if that makes sense. And then lastly, the commitment of the apostles is really important. This was a point that really, I think, it really helped me a few years ago when thinking through this. Um, what was the social and economic gain of the apostles promoting the resurrection of Jesus? Well, they were all martyred. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were all persecuted. Um, they were ostracized, opposed, marginalized, criticized, discredited largely in, in terms of the broader social environment um, and political environment. So they were, um, they were a scourge uh, to the general public. So they, they didn't really gain anything in this life. No. For promoting this belief in the resurrection of Jesus. There was, it's hard to find a motive financially or economically or socially uh, for them. Yeah, and by the way, prior to the resurrection, 
they did an awful lot to pursue uh, worldly gain or to mm-hmm. avoid worldly hardship. Like the, the, there was a grave concern, right, in the, in the expressed by the apostles of uh, earthly suffering on account of Christ, right? I mean, yeah. we know Peter, for instance, says, oh, I'll die with you. And then at the first sign of Jesus's trial and arrest and all the stuff that, that precedes his crucifixion, Peter's, Peter denies him, right? Yeah. And so their, their character and their courage prior to the resurrection, based on the point that you're talking about here, mm-hmm. is completely counter to the character and courage that they display after the resurrection. Yeah. Something changes in them. Right. Uh, everybody notes this. I mean, historians note this. Something changes in the apostles. And, and particularly, the most, I think the most notable example is you go for a guy like Paul, who was a religious leader of the Jews, and, I mean, he was a high-status guy. Yeah. And he has this radical conversion. And a persecutor of Christians. Not only did it throw him off everything that he had earned economically, status-wise, in his own tribe, but it also ruined everything that he had prior been believing about mm-hmm. what he was doing to these people. Yeah. And so there, you, you, you have to explain that. Why did he have such a radical conversion? Mm-hmm. Was he just hallucinate what what happened and that's that's the problem is there's not good answers to this outside of the the answers the bible just gives you right and what another thing that's really important like i said i was about to, to say this this was a very helpful thought to me i think i used this in a sermon a couple years ago this quote on thinking a, a lot of people think well the apostles were martyred yeah they were killed they lost life because they believed a fiction um uh, that they, you know, it's like we have people like that, and we have people like that in our society who kind of latch on to something that is fiction and kind of do crazy things for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they have just convinced themselves are true. But listen to the difference between that kind of thought and what the apostles were going through. Habermas, the the New Testament or the resurrection scholar, he says there is an important difference between the apostle martyrs and those who die for their beliefs today. Modern martyrs act solely out of their trust in beliefs that others have taught them. The apostles died for holding to their own testimony that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. That's really important. (laughs) So what we're saying is, if, if the apostles knew that Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, you're telling me they went through all of the persecution and death for something they knew Wasn't to be true. untrue. Yeah. It's hard to, that's hard to rationalize. Yeah. That's hard to rationalize. And so again, these sorts of, of lines of argument and, uh, and reasoning are what lead most New Testament scholars, including ones that don't even believe in the Bible or Jesus being God himself or anything. They come to the conclusion, we have to say that something happened at the tomb. Right. The tomb was, the tomb was empty. We don't know how, but, but something, something happened there. So, so a, a, uh, I'll just last two quotes from these scholars. Um, one of the resurrection specialists, uh, a New Testament scholar in, in Germany, he says, by far, most scholars hold firmly to the reliability to the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. 
and E.P. Sanders, a very, very influential British scholar of the last century, uh, who was a liberal scholar, he says this is what scholars across the board agree on. He says, after Jesus' death, he appeared to his disciples. How he appeared, I am not prepared to say. What he's basically saying is, I have to admit on the evidence, mm -hmm. Jesus appeared to those apostles somehow. I don't know how. I don't know what the explanation was. There, it's probably a, a strange explanation, but it's not untrue. Right. That's an amazing state. Those are amazing statements that I think most of us think when we think of kind of the secular world that have no has no respect. You've for referred this. numerous times in reading these particular scholars that they are liberal scholars. So explain real quick what you mean by yeah. that designation. Yeah, not like politically liberal. Like right. I just want to make sure that yeah, we they wouldn't believe that the, that. that the Bible is the word of God. They wouldn't believe that the Bible is inspired or inerrant, mostly. Um, okay. They would not believe that Jesus actually was God. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they really wouldn't hold to a lot of anything that we believe, but they're looking at the historical evidence and saying it's hard to deny. With a measure of objectivity and... and they're, they're trying. Researching yeah. And yeah. From, a, from a strictly information yeah. kind of base. So I, I just want to make sure that we, we clarify what yeah, you mean sure. by liberal scholars, because what you're saying is these aren't people who would necessarily be seen as on our team, so to speak. At all. Right? <laughs> At all. So, so that's but what But they're having a hard time not coming they to... They can't get past certain things. ...to the empty tombs reality. Right. Um, so with that, I mean, again, most of these people, they don't believe in, in miracles. So they, th what do they do with this? What's the, what's the explanation for the tomb? And I just want to read you some of these scholars who are trying to be honest. They have, they have come to the conclusion that something happened at the tomb. The, the tomb was empty. I don't know how, but it was. Hey, so you have, so a couple of things. You have a dead body, mm -hmm. a burial, mm -hmm. physical burial mm -hmm. in a tomb. And then a couple of days later, you have that tomb is empty. Yes. And nobody's ever discovered. And claims. Except for the claims of seeing the body alive. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. Along with the claims that not, not only is he missing, he's actually appeared. Right. To and, others and outside. And no counterclaim that, no, 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 we found the body over here. So oh, that's no, not no. possible. You don't do, right. We have none of that. None. None, none whatsoever. of that. So let me just read to you some of the alternative explanations of this empty tomb that some of the scholars come to. I mean, and most of them realize how crazy the, the things that they're saying are. <laughs> uh, but before I do that, one of the important things to, to point out about these alternative explanations, if you're not just going to accept that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God himself, is that um, most of these are, are really highly improbable, and most people know it. And uh, when, when you look at these, again, you're seeing naturalistic explanations that have been put forward to explain this conundrum that the tomb was empty. Um, so let me just let me just look at a couple. Uh, the first that I mean, this is pretty popular. This the swoon hypothesis. The swoon hypothesis. The swoon hypothesis. Uh, Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but merely fainted. He was buried alive, but later reawoke in the tomb and appeared to his disciples, who believe he had been resurrected. So Jesus fainted on the cross, and he and he was kind of he kind of took us news on the way from the cross to the to the grave, and uh, then somehow got out of the tomb. What's not mentioned here is, but by, by the way, none of that denies that he endured scourging, torture, and crucifixion. Yeah. So well, he had the he had the wherewithal at the personal level to fake 
or feign or to faint mm-hmm. or to fake fainting. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then just come back and I be mean, okay. the problems are with this is one, uh, any, any medical scholars that have looked at crucifixions, right. these guys, the Romans knew what they were doing. Yeah. The, Nobody was getting away from, from dying on that, on the cross. Yeah. What was the, what was the in Princess Bride? What was the torture chamber called? Oh, I forget. Like this is not mostly dead. No, this no, is. He's all dead. Like somebody, somebody loses their job if he's not dead. Like right. this, they knew what they were doing, killing on the cross. Yeah, they were experts at it. That, that's very highly unlikely that somebody made it through the cross. Second, this doesn't take into consideration that one, there was guards outside the tomb. If Jesus was alive, he didn't just waltz out and say peace out to those guards. The pit of despair. That's what it was. <laughs> the pit Sorry, of it just hit me. Princess Bride, the pit of despair. Sorry. Well, Go ahead. You were saying. <laughs> I was talking on. about the resurrected son of God. Oh, yeah. It's my bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so passive aggressive. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. But there was guards at the, at the tomb. Yeah. He, if he woke up and, oh, I'm, I'm getting out of him out of here, I, I don't think that would have happened with the guards there. So, this, I mean, this is just kind of fanciful if you think about it. The next one is the reburial hypothesis. Mm. Jesus was supposed to be buried in a criminal's grave, but due to Sabbath time constraints, Joseph of Arimathea had to temporarily place Jesus' body in his own tomb. After the Sabbath, Joseph reburied Jesus in the unmarked criminal's grave without telling his disciples. The disciples came to the tomb, discovered it empty, and imagined that they saw Jesus. I'm picturing right now... um Joseph of Arimathea being interviewed and having this suggestion made to him, and he gives that Jim Halpert office look, like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like raised eyebrow, like really, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean the the most glaring problem uh, problem with this to me is it's all speculative. There's not one evidence. Yeah, sure. There's there's not there's nothing in the text that that, that points to this. Well, it's assuming a conclusion and then going to as far. The length That's that you a need lot to of detail to. based on no no evidence in a historical document. Yeah, it's a willingness to, to create all kinds of details to get to whatever conclusion yeah. you're trying to get Another to. Another problem is, the only, like you're talking about the women didn't see him at the tomb, but they saw the gardener. Well, what about all the other appearances that are mentioned? Mm-hmm. Again, kind of fanciful. Uh, another one is the twin hypothesis. Jesus had a twin brother, probably Thomas, called Didymus. Jesus died on the cross, but later the disciples saw his twin from a distance, and rumors spread that Jesus had been resurrected. This uh, <laughs> theory emerged after the first screening of The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Do you remember that movie? Have you seen oh, that movie? I don't know what you're talking you about. You haven't seen this movie? Oh, mm-hmm. spoiler alert. I may have just given you some insight into the, uh, well, explain the, the end of The Prestige. No, everybody needs to go watch it. Not this to week. find out if Jesus had a twin brother? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Jesus did not have a twin brother. There's no evidence that Jesus had a twin no brother. No evidence to support that. I'm yeah. just saying. If you uh, saw uh, that movie, you would understand what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm about. not even going to respond to that one. <laughs> <laughs> about four people listening right now know okay. exactly what I'm talking about. And they got to chuckle at We're going to move on because I, I really don't think that one the twin the hypothesis. The twin hypothesis. Which of these? Well, I'll ask you when you're done. The, the hypnosis hypothesis. Jesus used hypnosis to fake the resurrection and convince his disciples that he had been risen from the dead. Yeah. 
The problem is we have people outside of the apostles attesting to the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We have right, we have we have documents outside the of the gospel talking about the 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 death for sure. Mm-hmm. The re- so this idea that he could have convinced them of his death is just historically impossible to the other documents we have outside of the New Testament. And it's just wild. I mean, that's absolutely wild. Like this is a wild compared to the standards that most the, most people look for historical evidence. This this is fanciful stuff. Oh, it's. Completely okay. Uh, this is the last one here that I have. We could, uh, you could go through a lot of these, but you do have to pick a favorite when we're done. The stolen body hypothesis: mm. someone probably Jesus, someone probably Jesus' family member stole Jesus' body to rebury it elsewhere without the disciples' knowledge. The disciples came to the tomb, discovered it empty, and imagined that they saw Jesus. Again, you got the problem of the soldiers. You got the problem of the soldiers recorded in the text that they were outside of the tomb. Even Matthew it talks about how uh, when, the, when, the, when the Jews uh, were accusing of, they stole the body, something happened to the body. Well, they never produced one to mm-hmm. find. Mm-hmm. So again, you have things that just, that with, the, with the evidence that we have, the documents that we have, you have to make conclusions based off of those documents. Yep. And none of them point to any of these theories that are really just explanations of trying to work your way out of what you see happening, which is there was an empty tomb, but I don't know what to do about it outside of naturalistic yeah. um, explanations, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And I just point those out because sometimes I think we, we think the, the standards of, of, of truth for a lot of these people are so high. But then when, when faced with this, these arguments, the, the, what's reverted to in trying to explain the conclusions ha- is so below the standards of anything that Right. Any of them would ever publish that to me it it goes beyond just truth it's this well, is one of the problems with the, trying to talk about the resurrection as simply just some historical fact, even if it's miraculous that you either know to be true or not. I think most people unconsciously or consciously, as they're trying to be objective and wrestle with the historical facts, realize if this is true, it has serious implications on my life mm-hmm. And that's different than me deciding if there's molecules in the world or not. Well, there's the old statement, right, that that uh, truth is only hateful if you hate the truth, mm. right? And um, and there's a reason that people would have to hate this truth, yeah, right? Because mm. if this is true, like you just said, there are implications of that. Yeah. If a man who claims to be God predicts in many different ways at many different times his own death and resurrection and then actually um, follows through on that, yeah. dies, and is resurrected. And there's eyewitness account to that. And, all the, and then now all of a sudden we all have a conundrum because now there's a unique figure on the stage of human history mm-hmm. who has a unique kind of power and authority and we have to listen to him in a whole different kind of way than we would listen to any other voice. Yeah. So if this resurrection thing is true, now I have to go back and reevaluate everything that this man said. Yes. And everything he claimed and everything he pointed to or everything he does and everything like all of a sudden his life bears significance. Yeah. For me today and for all of history. Mhm. And I I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of people 
who do not want to have to do that. Yes. They're a whole lot more comfortable yes. living, sort of portraying <clears throat> uh, the, the person of Christ and then those who claim to follow Christ in cartoonish fashion. It's easier to do that and to dismiss them and to mm-hmm. discredit them and to deny them or whatever um, than to actually have to reckon with what if that's true? Yeah. And what does that mean for me? Yeah. So, uh, one of the, like I said, one of the things I wanted to do with this is, one, give you peace from some of the silly articles that you're going to see at the store in Publix in the checkout aisle on Time Magazine or Life Magazine about the historical resurrection and what it means, or if you saw an article online. Um, that stuff's just silly to me because it doesn't really deal with the real scholarship going on. Um, and give you some confidence in being able to, to have some educated conversations with people who, who, want, who may want to have this conversation with you. Mm. Um, and it strengthened both your faith and confidence to, to have these conversations and give you something to, to, to talk with about if people bring up the resurrection of Jesus. But also, I wanted to give you sweet comfort and peace for what it means. Mm. Because a lot of people just talk about the resurrection and, oh, the resurrection. But like we've been saying, the resurrection has meaning. Mm-hmm. It does something. It wasn't, it wasn't just a trick. It had significant meaning for our lives. That's why Paul finds it so grave that all of us are hopeless. Those who are, haven't been born yet, those who are in the world now, and those who've died, there's no hope if Christ wasn't raised for the dead. And this is what Paul says at the end of, or at the, in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15 about uh, if Christ really did rise. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and at his coming those who belong to Christ. Mm. What that says to us, a lot of us, a lot of us wonder. I think, I know we don't say this out loud a lot, but some people do. Is there really something beyond death? Mm-hmm. Is there really heaven out there? Is there really something that's, is there something more than just me going into a grave and kind of blacking out? And for our faith, that's not a something, yes, for us, it's something beyond, <laughs> beyond what we can know. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that has been already, uh, lived out for us in Christ so that we actually get to look back in the historical events of Christ's resurrection and see the promise and surety of our future. Yeah, that he, not only did he, did he foreshadow or prophesy his own death and resurrection mm-hmm. and then pull it off, but he actually, he actually also said that it would be, um, that his would be the first, what you called there in that, that text, the first fruits, right? Mm-hmm. That, that that would be then a pattern after which we follow as those who have been received new life in him, that we too would receive a resurrection, yeah. right? And and so our our hope in that is not just sentimentality. Our hope in that is the fact of an already pulled off resurrection. Yeah, <laughs> that's been, I mean, honestly, that has ministered to me so much. I, I have struggled at times in my life frequently of, is, this, is there really something beyond death? 
is there really something for me? It, I, I struggle with the resurrection and, and soul beyond the world. So I, that, that's a real struggle sometimes, even, even though I'm a Christian, right? But I don't struggle as much with the, with the evidence that Jesus risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. And the connection there is that Jesus says that's a, his proven resurrection is as sure as my resurrection beyond this life. Amen. And that gives me real hope for my own doubts about my own resurrection. Right. And that's beautiful. I mean, my, like, like Paul says, if that's not true, I'm the worst to be pitied. But if it is true, I have more hope than life or death can offer. And, and, and I'll just, I want to throw, I'll just lob this out there. We don't have time to expand on it. But, but you started this by talking about how so many people have come at this conversation with a naturalistic worldview, mm-hmm. meaning that they inherently deny uh, the supernatural any, in any miraculous. way. What this is also telling us is that we live in a supernatural world. Yes. Not a natural world only. Mm-hmm. We live in a supernatural world. And so that tells us something that, man, we've got the wrong starting place in many cases yeah. in terms of our, you know, our approach to academia and, and the, the sort of uh, intellectual sort of popular thought of our day mm-hmm. of that the yeah. world is, is just a, yeah. a natural universe. Like, no. Yeah. God created this world and, and, and there's a supernatural reality that surrounds yeah. us. Um, and so, and, and Jesus's resurrection is yeah. the clearest evidence of that. And even in something like academia, uh, secular academia, God's truth can still break through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God's truth can still break through. Yeah, for sure. So I hope this encourages you. I hope it uh, strengthens your faith. I hope it helps you have a, have a ready defense, but also an offer of someone who, who asks, is there a sign? I want a sign from God. We can actually say that he's given us a sufficient one yeah. and have a conversation about that. So Amen. looking forward to seeing everybody on Sunday as we worship. Friday. Fact. Good Friday. 7 Good o'clock. Friday. Sunday morning, 1030. Cookout to follow. Yes. We hope to see you all there. And we'll see you in the resurrection. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>